So this fall, I'm preaching a sermon series called Wise Words of a Wild Wonder Worker. We're listening to the parables and proclamations of Jesus as they come to us from the gospel according to St. Matthew. You'll be glad to know that this is Stewardship Sunday. So I thought this passage would be appropriate for us to hear on Stewardship Sunday. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to ensnare Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God according to the truth and show deference to no one for you don't regard people with partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then Jesus said to them, Render therefore unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The Pharisees asked Jesus, trying to ensnare him in a dangerous political controversy. And you can see how it's a cruel and cunning trap, can't you? Roman tyranny was a sad and despised reality for first century Jews and the question about how whether about whether and how to cooperate with these hated interlopers was a lively debate during Jesus time is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not they ask him if Jesus says no he will get himself into a boatload of hot water with Jewish liberals who abhorred any kind of collaboration with Rome, even a simple head tax, which probably went for good roads and police and fire protection and bread for the poor. Roman taxes, these people said, enabled Roman despotism. How can you even think of paying these taxes? So that's what will happen if Jesus says yes. And if he says no, of course, he'll be in big trouble not only with the Roman authorities, but also with Jewish conservatives who believed that the only way to survive under the thumb of the most muscular superpower the world had ever seen was to go along and get along. We have roads. We have a police force and a fire department. We have all of these great weapons of mass destruction to protect us from the barbarians. Of course we have to pay our taxes. So there's Jesus between a rock and a hard place, between the devil and the deep blue sea, between Churchill and Hitler like Vichy France to pile up the cliches. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? There's no way out of this one. Are you for or against a balanced federal budget, Mr. Boehner asks Matt Lauer on the Today Show. Do Americans love baseball and apple pie, Matt? Well, then what federal programs will you cut or what taxes will you raise to pay for this balanced budget? 
I'll get back to you on that later, Matt, says Mr. Boehner. Jesus is between a rock and a hard place, but what he doesn't say is, I'll get back to you on that later, Matt. He's shrewder in the media glare than our current politicians, perhaps because he's the son of God, or maybe just because he has more experience dealing with political antagonists. He says, show me a coin, Matt. So a Pharisee hands him a silver coin minted with the image of Tiberius Caesar. Somebody just brought me one. This is it. You probably can't see it. It's tiny. But Tiberius Caesar's image is on this coin along with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, August son of the divine Augustus. You can see why this coin would drive loyal monotheistic Jews crazy with righteous rage. Divine Augustus indeed. The only use for this small silver coin was to pay taxes to Rome. You couldn't buy a loaf of bread with it or a jug of Mogan David wine or a Snickers bar at whatever passed for the Jewelosco in first century Jerusalem. All you could do with it was hand it over to the Roman IRS every April 15th. So the Pharisee who produces this coin has already revealed his true colors and indicted himself as a quizzling taxpayer to Rome. Graciously, Jesus refrains from pointing this out, thus saving the reputation of the obliging Pharisee who impetuously hands him a coin before thinking through the implications. Whose image is on this coin, Jesus asked the Pharisees. Caesar's, they're forced to admit. Then render back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, says Jesus. But then, of course, he goes on and render unto God the things that are God's. (laughs) In a satisfying little coda to this story, Matthew tells us that the Pharisees are so stunned by Jesus' political dexterity that they go away and leave him alone for a while. And that's why it's so much fun to be a Christian. Jesus is just so good. With one slick move, he puts both God and government into their rightful places. As someone once put it, with his superb reply, Jesus both dignifies and delimits government. And I love the way he puts that. He dignifies and delimits government. British historian Lord Acton says, the words of Jesus gave to civil authority a sacredness it had never enjoyed but also bounds it had never acknowledged. Jesus gives government a sacredness, but also boundaries. I had a libertarian friend who used to confuse me because he wore a lapel pin that said, taxation is theft. And the reason I was confused is because my friend had earned his PhD degree from Michigan State University. And as you may know, the taxpayers of the state of Michigan partially fund Michigan University. He probably went to school there without paying a dime and rather received a stipend from the university, getting the best education that's possible on earth. So he confused me. Jesus dignifies government. He's the friend of the IRS. True, they don't have many friends, but still. You've heard the story about the pastor who received a call one day in his office from the Internal Revenue Service 
Reverend Smith, they said, this is the Internal Revenue Service. Can you tell us if Samuel B. Jones is a member of your congregation? The Reverend Smith says he indeed is a member of my congregation. Did he donate $10,000 to your congregation, Reverend Smith? And Reverend Smith says without missing a beat, he will. You see how God and the IRS can work together for the good of the church and the state. Jesus dignifies the state, but then, of course, he delimits it. He places the significant power of the state under the superior canopy of God's huge power because everybody knows that even a strapping superpower like Rome is a pipsqueak compared to God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God, says Jesus, eluding the Pharisees' clutches like Cam Newton with one of his patented scrambles in the backfield. There's the long heave. Bam! Touchdown, Jesus. But of course, on Stewardship Sunday, I'm far more interested in the second half of Jesus' little epithet than the first, render to God the things that are God's. And you know what? It all belongs to God. As surely as those little silver coins are minted with the image of Caesar, so your very visage is stamped with the image of God. It's God's face we see when we look into each other's eyes. Your creativity, your intelligence, your humanity, it's all because your visage is stamped with the image of God. God's face, God's grace, God's extravagant generosity. It's in the marrow of your bones. It's in the blood in your veins. It's in the fibers of your muscles. It's in the rhythm of your pulse and in the synapses of your brain. And without the face of God, you can't be you. You can't be anything. Even atheists can't atheate without that superb creativity of God way back when at the beginning of time. So pay your taxes loyally and cheerfully so that government can do the good things government is called to do because you live in the greatest country in the world. And as for what's left over, at least 10% goes to charitable causes from which you should expect to receive no direct benefit. 10% should be a floor, not a ceiling. It's where we should, people like us at least, it's where we should start giving, not stop giving. We don't expect you to give it all to the church. There are many deserving charitable causes that deserve your philanthropy. If Northwestern University transformed you from a clueless 18-year-old into a sophisticated engineer, then give some of your money to Northwestern University, even though they already have $7.1 billion, which is more money than God. Beauty is a good thing, so give some of your money to the orchestra or the opera. Public television is a good thing, so give some of it to Ken Burns so he can tell us stories about the Roosevelts, who, by the way, practice what I'm preaching. Reliable health care is a good thing, so give some of your money to Community Health Clinic. There are many worthy recipients of your charitable giving, but the Stewardship Committee calculates that if we were to give 3% of our incomes to the church, we could, now get this, we could have a budget of $2.5 million. The median household income in Wilmette is $122,000. That's the lowest of the three towns from which most of our members come. 3% of that is $2.5 million. 
That hasn't been happening around here lately. I thought you would like to see how our congregation stacks up against congregations that are similar to ours, either in size or in socioeconomic demographics or both. Most of the churches I've listed here are Presbyterian churches because this is the simple reason that the Presbyterian Church USA is a dry, rational, linear-thinking denomination that is absolutely obsessed with statistics and makes them available to anyone with a computer. In two important measures of, house, of, of uh, congregational giving, giving per member and giving as a percentage of median household income, we have a little bit of improvement to do. We come near the bottom of this list in both of, of those measures. And I ask myself, now, why is that? Is it possible that non-denominational congregations are less generous than denominational Christians? Is there something about denominational loyalty that increases generosity? I don't think so, because most denominational Christians are ambivalent at best about their denominational identities, which is something you have chosen to eschew since the beginning of your existence. Besides that, I happen to know that prior generations of this congregation have been extremely gen How much do we have in our endowment? $12 million? Every generation ought to pay its own way. You should never live off the income of another generation. The federal government does this. They're making their way by having our grandchildren pay our federal debt. That's unseemly. Many churches live off the generosity of dead people. That's also unseemly. So I know that you are a generous congregation. Maybe our giving per member figures are so low because we really don't have the 2,814 members we think we have. Maybe this church is really more like a 1,600-member church because if we use that figure to make these calculations, we look okay by that measure. So maybe we ought to find out what happened to those 1,200 people, track them down, and invite them back. Or alternatively, invite them to find a church they can get excited about. Now, maybe the people at this church are not typical of families that live in Wilmette or Winnetka or Kenilworth. Maybe you all make minimum wage. You don't look like it. You know what I think? I think this, is, this congregation is as generous as every one of those ones I've listed. I think what's happened is that in the last few years, nobody's fault. In the last few years, this congregation has become a less compelling target for your generosity. I think you're still giving 10% of what you make away. I just think you're giving it somewhere else. So, as I said in a recent newsletter, how about we make a deal? I'll speak for the leadership, for the staff, and for the board and the stewardship committee and say that we will promise to do everything in our power to make this congregation indispensable in the life of your family. Indispensable. And as for your part, I hope you will restore this congregation as a meaningful recipient of your lavish generosity, along with all of those other deserving organizations. I heard a great story this summer 
A woman from Newport News, Virginia, tells it. She says, when I was 10 years old, on the sidewalk, I found a little brown leather wallet. There was no money in the wallet, but I knew how these things worked. I was eager to receive my reward. So I spent all day calling the number that I found inside the wallet. And finally, near the end of the day, my father gave up and decided to drive me to the address that we found in the wallet. And when we arrived at the address, we saw a modest military housing unit with a torn screen door on the front porch. And as we stood there waiting for someone to answer the door, my father took three $20 bills and slipped them into the wallet. And the lady says, it turns out that my reward that day was to see one of life's true heroes in action. Now, do you think that 10-year-old girl is going to grow up to be a generous and kind human being? What example are you setting for your children? You christen your babies here. You walk your daughters down the aisle here and hand them over to the loves of their lives. Your loved ones are farewelled here. Your soul soars here, lifted aloft by a song or a prayer. Your children learn about Jesus here. The gospel is sent into every desolate corner of the earth from here. Now, what are we going to do about it? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.